This is episode number 27 of the Abuse Talk podcast with me, Jennifer Gilmore. Welcome to the Abuse Talk podcast. My name is Jennifer Gilmore. I turned my mess into a message. I'm an author and advocate for women in abusive relationships and believe that together we are louder. Each fortnight, there is a new episode on the Abuse Talk podcast, a series of interviews with those that work in the domestic abuse sector, getting an inside feel for what it's really like in their job role and sharing it with all of you. But today we are sharing something different. We're introducing survivor stories, those who have lived it, experienced it and are willing to share. I speak with Destiny. She is a survivor with a disability and we have a discussion around disability and what that means for her. She shares her experiences and it's certainly an interview that is passionate. She has a message to be heard. But first, I want to say a big thank you to Rockpool. They're the main sponsors for Hashtag Abuse Talk. Rockpool provide industry-leading training and consultancy services for organisations that support people who've been affected by trauma. They have a new Hope to Recovery programme, the first step to recovery from domestic abuse. It's a brand new educational programme for people who are experiencing or have experienced abuse. You can find out more on their website, rockpool.life. I also want to say a big thank you to patrons on the hashtag Abuse Talk tier. That's Katrina here and Susan Rahima. They have the news and updates of everything that happens on hashtag Abuse Talk and are currently watching the new app development unfold. You can find out more about that at patreon.com forward slash Jen L Gilmore. And you can also head to our new website, abusetalk.co.uk. Now, what you've been waiting for, that conversation with Destiny. Right, well, um, hi everyone. I am delighted to be bringing another survivor story with us um, today on the podcast. And actually, this lady that I'm speaking to has been connected with me for quite some time over Twitter and then on other social media platforms. Um, We're going to call her Destiny, which is a part of her Twitter handle, and I will get her to introduce herself in a moment. Um, But she has a blog and she is a coach and she is calling this Survivor, not Superhero. And we're going to be unraveling that. But to give you a bit of background, um, I shared an article on Hashtag Abuse Talks Facebook page not so long ago, and it was about domestic abuse, and there was an element that Destiny Fell was missing, and that was to do with disabilities. And Destiny responded, and we had a bit of a comment chat going online, and then we had a discussion in the inbox, and then we ended up on the phone, and clearly um, Destiny wanted to share her experiences with us, and I felt it was appropriate. So, Destiny, hello, how are you? I'm Jane, how are you? I'm doing great today. 
That's great. Well, thank you for joining me. Um, could you tell us a bit more about um, the article we were sort of talking over so everybody gets an idea? I've always struggled with the idea of claiming my own experience as domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I kind of fit into your world. And you had shared an article and admittedly, I was triggered by another article that I'd seen earlier that day on my own timeline. And your article eliminated disability out of the whole picture. And this other article that triggered me was instances of abuse that happened within a facility here in Canada. And we had opened up the discussion of how it's either that's the view that people get when it comes to disabilities. It's people that get neglected and abused within facilities and within any other context of abuse, like a relationship or family. People kind of think it's all happy-go-lucky and we're privileged or lucky to have people take care of us. Mm. When there can be a lot of monsters in our world. <laughs> hmm. Well, could you tell us, you know, what is it like to live with a disability then? Uh, broad question. Hmm. And I'm going to keep it to my own experience because I can't answer for everybody because disability is a broad term that mm -hmm. does mean different things for different people. So in my experience, I am confined to a wheelchair, paralyzed from the waist down. I have been since birth due to a disability called spina bifida. Disability is always seen through a medical model, presumably, so I've been told by my parents, I was, wasn't supposed to talk, talk, learn, breathe on my own, feed myself, speak. Clearly, I'm here doing most of that. <laughs> So that was not necessarily true. But within the medical field, anyone in my condition technically would be seen as not really having quality of life hmm. and needing to be taken care of. And in the process of that, what can happen is parents can kind of get this idea and society feeds into it that they're martyrs or they're wonderful people and they'll they'll feed off the image of it like and in the background they're really not what people portrayed them to be they're only portrayed to be that way or seen in that light because they have a disabled child that they have to take care of mm. so even if they're unkind or abusive, it gets overlooked or denied because obviously it's a lot of stress and other things that get used, used as an excuse when something comes up and there's mm. mistreatment or neglect or other forms of abuse. Mm. So I guess if you've, you've, you already have that um, disability and obviously it 
as you say, it's a broad term that I've used there. There's obviously differences. Um, but then we add abuse to that. You know, what, 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 what is that like? How, you know, I suppose it's an abuse of power, would you say? That's interesting that you should bring that up because I had written an article a little while, a while ago and I can share it with you later if you want to share it. Mm-hmm called equal the unequal Mm. and technically within if we want to look at a power struggle I'm confined to a wheelchair all you have to do is remove me from my wheelchair and remove my wheelchair from a situation where I can't get to it in any way shape or form and that's it you can do what you want there's nothing I can do about it it's as simple as that Mm. And how how have you um how have you got you know to that point of being able to reflect back and see what has happened to you um you know through your experiences how can you see you know can you see where things maybe were, were wrong or what differences there would have been if you'd have had a different kind of help or support um because obviously this is a a hidden element that there was a lot of blame. Right. Or that I blamed myself for not being able to kind of do the whole walking thing and running. And of course, it doesn't matter who you are or what type of abuse you're you're enduring. If you're cut in the middle of a street by some random guy or it's a boyfriend or a family member, Mm. when you're attacked, you're not going to run whether you can or you can't. I mean, it's been broken. (laughs) Most people don't run. So for a really long time, it was like, well, if I could have run, then I could have stopped it. Or if I didn't need the help, then it wouldn't have happened. And, well, like I said, we've got plenty of proof that, you know, that's not necessarily the case. It happens to people that aren't disabled. Mm. Some statistics that I can speak to that might be interesting for some people is within the abuse within the disabled community sorry uh, the likelihood of somebody being abused is be- somewhere between 80 85 90 95 percent with the highest rate of those people being someone who lacks one of the major senses sight hearing the ability to run so blind, deaf, mobility impaired in some way. So that was kind of scary. And I just found that out about a year ago. Yeah. And I mean, for me, why, why would anybody do this to somebody? Um, you know, do you think um, it's because they have a disability or is it be the person is it some, some fault with the, the person that they feel they have to do that to a dis- disabled person? Or is it just a personality trait? You know, it, do you think there is a difference um, between, you know, somebody with a disability and somebody that doesn't? Is there a clear difference there? Or is it actually that it's the same problem but shown in different ways? Uh, complex question. But I'll try yeah. to tackle it a bit by bit. Uh, there are some definite things that, within the context of disability, 
that can easily be overlooked, but then also should be counted as something that's abusive. If you remove, okay, let's say we have somebody that can't speak and they use an iPad or a computer. If you remove something like that from them, you're taking away their voice. I saw on Twitter a while ago some person, and I don't know. I don't know what mine conceived of this idea to think it was a good one, but I digress. There was a question on Twitter of this supposed parent of this deaf girl who wasn't doing her chores, who had a cochlear implant, which is an implant that you can get that allows you to hear when you're deaf. And he asked on Twitter if people thought it was okay to remove her implant in order to, as a way to get her to do her chores. And I'm thinking, okay, what mind conceives the idea that it's okay to remove somebody's hearing in order to get them to do their chores? <laughs> I mean, technically, yes, it may be artificial, an artificial way of hearing or an altered way of hearing that's not typical somebody else but it's still equal to if somebody cut your ears off you would everybody would assume that was sick and twisted <laughs> but yet because this is a detachable device that works by battery people see it as different yeah. when it still eliminates the same thing yeah i mean you couldn't do that to somebody who was hearing so I mean, why would you even do that to somebody who, you know, can't hear? It's, I suppose it's a human right, as we would call it. You know, nobody has a right to take that from her, you know. Um, that's It's her right to be able to hear. And she's been, you know, she's had that procedure so that it allows her to hear clearly um, or better. Um, I guess for me when we talk about this and you know we hear these kind of stories it makes me feel quite sick in the stomach and I'm sure I'm not the only one you know feeling like that and I think also that there are probably many people out there that have been abused um, and perhaps unable to speak about it because of their disability or be able to I, well i can speak to that quite easily actually because a part of my disability from being paralyzed from the waist down and having the whole incontinence issue with going to the bathroom and needing help with dressing and undressing from the assistance of everybody else or at least another person that leaves me, you know, in situations where I'm going to the bathroom and my clothes are off or I'm taking a bath and my clothes are off. So it's, you know, everything is right there. And like I said, I'm outside of my chair. So I yeah. can get away. They can pretty much do whatever they want. I can scream, but what good is that going to do? And um, what would what would you say to somebody who is maybe listening and feels that they're in that position that they're being abused um, in that situation, what would you say to them? I want to 
say, you know, reach out to somebody, even if it's on Twitter, get yourself involved, check out my website, I have resources there. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of resources out there for disabled people. There's not a lot of accurate statistics available. And back, piggybacking off of what I just said, if you're my caregiver and you're in charge of doing all those things with me, potentially you're also, you could be in charge, you could be someone that is required to get me a phone if I need it. You could be someone that's required to transport me from one place to another. You're not gonna take me to, to a hospital if you abuse me to have me checked out. You're not gonna give me the phone to let me call a cop and report your ask. Why would you? That's telling on yourself. Yeah, so what can people do then? So do you know of any kind of support services online? I mean, I know you mentioned your blog um, and yeah, what and you do with like raising awareness. Um, yeah, and I'm a coach. Okay. Myself, trained with the International Association of Trauma Recovery Coaching. It's fairly new. So I am someone that someone in this position can reach out to and, you know, embark on a recovery journey if they so choose. I am disabled myself. I am aware of, you know, a lot of the accommodations that would be needed to navigate a recovery. Mm -hmm. There's not a whole lot that I can do when it comes to reporting instances of abuse, unfortunately, but that's kind of a double-edged sword. It may not necessarily be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I had personal experience where as an adult, I was abused in childhood, but then again, typically, as most of us know, we get into relationships or get to know people in adult life that turn out to abuse us too. Same story. So I had had a guy that was in my life that was abusing me as an adult. And once I got away from him, I had reported it. And because of the nature of my disability and the things he was helping helping me, oops, sorry, helping me with, because he was a caregiver for me, the cop looked at me after a three hour long report of taking every freaking detail of the last two years of my life and said, this is gonna go nowhere because you needed his help. And I'm mean, like, I'm sorry, help, helping me go to the bathroom is not consent to do anything else other than helping me go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, I mean, you're sharing very sensitive and, you know, you know, stories here, but you have, um, that you have mentioned about healing, um, from your experiences. Um, what, when did you start that journey? It was on and off for several years. After the last, in, the last instance of abuse with my family, who was still abusing me after I moved out on my own because they were still in contact with me at the time, I had had a neighbor next door who met me in my hallway and said, it's in your eyes. If you ever need me, if you ever need to talk, come over. Just out of the blue, we met in the hallway, and that's what he said to me. 
It's in your eyes. If you ever need to talk, come over. And this happened like two other different times where he'd kind of be at his door and I'd be at mine going to our apartments or we'd meet in the hallway. And he said, and he said, it's really hard not to hear things when I'm home, when your bathroom is on my wall. And it was when he said that, I'm like, oh, he knows. And he had helped me for a really long time, just himself, just as a friend. And he got me in touch with the local Red Crisis Center here, and I had entered into counseling. But at that time, I had it was between when I met the guy that I was just talking about and when I kind of finally got out of the clutches of my parents. So technically, it was still while I was being abused. So whatever help it was, wasn't really being a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. Because can... you can't really heal from it when you're still in it. <laughs> no, I think it's actually really a lot harder because you actually know what's happening as well. Um, and then there was another stint with the psychologist that I did for a couple of years. And then my and when I moved out here five, about five years ago, I was in therapy again after taking a really long break because I was doing okay, which I actually was doing okay considering everything I'd been through. And the last therapy experience I had was not actually the healthiest. Mm. It was actually hurting me more than it was helping. And due to the nature of my disability, some of it, some of it has learning aspects to it. So some of the big words that we get thrown at us in therapy here, deal with it and figure out what it is. I would be coming home and doing the homework part of therapy and reading all these big words and then going online to figure out what it meant and what it looked like in real life and everything that they don't actually tell you when you're in therapy, (laughs) unfortunately. They just kind of throw big words and throw definitions and you're like, okay, but what does it look like? And I had found a YouTube channel that put me in contact with two girls who were trauma recovery coaches, one who actually went on to do the association that I eventually got trained with, but she became in between when I got trained with them and me meeting them online. I'd actually got in for sessions with her for like two years. So when I transferred out of the whole therapy setting into a coaching environment and had somebody that was actually willing to listen to what happened rather than try to change what I thought about it and work with my feelings and kind of on that perpetual loop of identifying your feelings and stuff. Mm. Something actually clicked and I started to recover and I had somebody there that if I was dealing with self-injury stuff or having a really hard day that I could just call or email and know she was going to get back to me or message and she'd be right there right away if she was at her computer and we met like once a week for like two years and if I was having a special an especially hard time with dealing with triggers and self-injury she would up the appointments to more than once a week and I was like oh 
somebody cares about me. Somebody actually knows what it's like and somebody wants to be here. Yeah, I mean, I think what I picked up from, from you on that as well is that initial first moment when somebody listens and I can kind of relate to that in terms of, you know, you're sort of silenced for a long, a long time or it felt like that in my experiences. And um, when I finally got the chance to talk about it and have no concern over what the outcome might be, I that gave me a different sense of, I don't want to use the word freedom, but it was a, a bit of weight off my shoulders because I knew that it wasn't just carrying, I wasn't just carrying it now. It was shared with somebody and That's it was the first step. Case is to share it with somebody else. And the unfortunate reality is most other people that you're going to share it with are not going to handle it well. <laughs> you don't <Yeah>. know how. <laughs> You've definitely got to have the right person because it can damage relationships as well so um i've been there too <laughs> yeah and it's not fun well i think you know um for somebody who might be experiencing you know that that side you know having that first step and those first you know that first conversation where somebody is willing to actively listen and not give opinion or not direct in in a pushy way I just needed somebody to vocalize it to and I think having that person is kind of that first initial step that then obviously from what you've said unlocks different areas of support or even you've taken it upon yourself to look for that you know those youtube videos and that's led on to something else so automatically me looking at it from an outsider you've taken on that recovery and development and on yourself really it's you've taken that that's the thing and we'll we'll take it back to the disability end of it because where i had said some of the aspects of my disability had to do with learning and you know understanding big terms and big words and yeah getting overwhelmed which isn't necessarily learning because i think everybody feels that way regardless if they struggle with reading or not it's just it's <laughs> overwhelming when a professional is throwing a lot of big words out there so sometimes it can be a lot easier for me to take things in via video so i took to youtube to try and understand these things that was go were going on in therapy and that's when i came across the youtube channel that later led to where it did and like you said my own recovery but for the most part professionals don't know how to deal with the disability especially in a case like mine i think and back into where i said it's a medical model thing they just figure, okay, you're physically disabled. It's handled by doctors. It's none of my business. I don't need to know. And any educational pieces were handled in school. So it's un automatically assumed if you're an adult, like you can handle it on your own or mm -hmm. you've grown out of it if it's something that you've dealt with from childhood. Now I'm permanently disabled and I'm going to be in a chair 
I've been in it from birth. I'm going to be in it until I die. There is no cure for my disability. So it does not go away. It's here all the time. Mm. And so are the issues that come along with it. And a big part of what prevents somebody with a disability even seeking assistance or being able to find it is material on websites may not necessarily offer video or audio format hmm. to what's on the web page or you know they may not be willing to email like do email sessions with somebody who's hmm. nonverbal or can only type or whatnot or they may not be able to do the larger print materials for somebody that's visually impaired yeah. they may not know sign language for somebody that's deaf and it, those are important things that you need to know if you're going to facilitate a healing for somebody that's a survivor of abuse and have any of those things in the mix of it. Mm. So I guess we we need to be as accessible as possible, which has its own challenges. Um, obviously, as you've just listed some of those there, but yeah. <laughs> I, I feel I feel like I listed a lot and I'm like yeah out there kind of you know if and there's I guess, anything you can do about any of these you know go ahead I guess it's it's really difficult isn't it because there's there's so much more now to consider as well so there is different levels of disability um and you know even the learning element as well so we just had a twitter chat um last night and it was we were talking about jargon um and i'm talking about you know how people name things so like ghosted or hoovering or gaslighting and we're using these words but not necessarily will the general public or somebody who hasn't gone through an abusive relationship or abuse in itself they're not going to understand what that word means and I think that in itself makes our discussions maybe not as accessible. Whereas other people that were in the discussion also mentioned that actually it gives them a word that they can then explain it or it gives them a solid foundation to actually give it a name because there isn't a name there for it. Does that make sense? Um, it does. And I don't really necessarily find the issue with terms like gaslighting it's more like derealization and depersonalization and suicidal ideation and all those other medicalized i guess technical terms that a therapist would use as compared to gaslighting or hoovering or yeah all those that somebody like me or you would possibly use because we're in the realm yeah of understanding what those are but I think even even that with that side and with what you said, we need to be accessible. So we need to talk about what actually, what the meaning actually is behind that word. Um, sometimes we can just use it off the cuff and not think about the person reading it, understanding it. So it's really got me thinking recently about how we can make, you know, learning in the you know 
in the sector of abuse in general accessible for as many people as possible but it's really challenging for for me <laughs> and um i guess we need to or i need to speak to people to understand you know how can we do that and so i guess for me i'm really glad that we had this conversation and I got you to talk with me about it and your experiences because it it helps me have that understanding as well. Um, yeah, I mean, this this was really great. And if I can speak to one last point that we kind of didn't touch on, but yeah. we kind, it's kind of within this realm of making things accessible and whatnot, is talking about suicide prevention. And I've had experiences with suicide in my own recovery and that's something else that people automatically assume like somebody that's suicidal is going to jump off the cliff or off of a roof or mm. out in front of a car or off of a bridge <laughs> when you're in a wheelchair those options are not actually available like please if I find a way to get out of my chair up onto a roof or I'm way beyond needing anybody to step in. It's too late. <laughs> Honestly. So, like, it's professionals knowing that when there's a disability involved, not to look at a client who says, I feel like I want to die, or I feel like jumping off of a cliff and looking back at them with a facial expression that clearly says, well, I know you're not going to because you're physically not able to, and leaving it at that, because that was fairly much... A feeling that I got from a therapist at one point when I disclosed how I was feeling. Mm. It was a, almost die. like uh, even if um, you couldn't physically do it, it was still the expression that should have been the thing that they picked. Like, up. hello, I want to die. That's kind of important. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a big deal. Like, can we figure out why that might be? And you're not in that place now, are you? No. Uh, okay. <laughs> currently, in this moment, no. Currently, Working recently, up. no, <laughs> like not for a while. I, I have fleeting moments. What a personal thing to share. I want to say a huge thank you to Destiny for being so raw and honest about her experiences. And I think it will open um, many people's eyes into the reality and even down to the terminologies that we use. I think that I've learned quite a bit from just having the conversations with her around this episode as well. So thank you. And just for anybody listening, um, I have also mentioned to Destiny about support and anything that we have at this end. If you are triggered by anything that Destiny has said, please do check out the support information in the description of this podcast episode and feel free to reach out if you need and the next episode of the abuse top podcast will actually be broadcast live on youtube on the 7th of october it will then be published on the podcast on the 8th of October and you'll be able to listen to it on Access Northwest Radio Station Wednesdays at 8pm 
Saturdays at 2pm and Mondays at 5am for those early risers. You have been listening to Jennifer Gilmore, author of Isolation Junction and Clipped Wings, both available on Amazon or you can head to jennifergilmore.com. 